This is Lee, and you're listening to the FemSouth Podcast. And we're embarking on a six-part series examining the impact of the Dobbs decision in states like Alabama, where I live, that have a near-total ban on abortion. We're looking at this issue through an intersectional lens, knowing that access to abortion isn't a single-issue item. It impacts pregnant people's access to health care, pre- and postnatal care, infant mortality, women's economic and social status. It is intimately connected to sex education and consent, birth control, domestic abuse and violence, mental health, bodily autonomy, and on and on and on. Our aim is to keep this conversation in the public without fear or shame. This isn't about what is legal in Alabama. This is about what is a human right and how do we keep people safe and healthy. We found ourselves essentially completely gutted in our mission to support abortion rights, which was to directly confront those barriers. We had to really make a pivot and shift to how we confronted abortion access and justice in Alabama. The ACLU went from being a reproductive rights organization to a reproductive justice organization. That is not just talking about abortion and why it's important, why it's healthcare, but also talking about the other issues that impact pregnant people in the state of Alabama. You just heard a little soundbite from our first episode of our six-part series focused on the impact of the overturn of Roe in Alabama. This is our landscape episode, where we talk with representatives from three reproductive justice organizations in Alabama. In this episode, we're going to talk about the legal landscape, access to maternal health care, self-managed abortions and aftercare centers, contraception, education, and more. I'm your host, Lee, and I'm joined today by my two co-hosts, Lindsay and Meta. Here's us introducing the podcast by talking about our takeaways from the conversation. God, the abortion ban in Alabama is so drastic and it's so confusing. I was really eager to talk with the ACLU about it, but it turns out we're not alone, that it's confusing to lawyers too. Like what's legal, what's illegal. It's all ambiguous by design to suppress and scare people. And that's not okay. So I'm glad we got to talk about that. Um, Hearing firsthand what these women are seeing really helped me understand the true direct costs that the abortion ban is having here in Alabama. And hearing how a place like the West Alabama Women's Clinic was able to pivot really on that same day that the ban went into effect and what they did and the battle that lies ahead and how they are attacking it. I think that was that was really um inspiring and and insightful, really. Yeah, I agree, Meta. I think my biggest takeaway was learning how each one of these groups are doing way more services than providing abortions. They're going to talk about their birth and family justice programs more in this episode, but I just did not realize all the services they provide. Like, I didn't realize that they help women get insurance and and get prenatal care while they're waiting to be approved for insurance or waiting to be approved by a new doctor. I also didn't really realize 
uh, how much the aftercare centers are important for providing aftercare for um, pregnant people who are either wanting to end their pregnancy on their own terms through self-managed abortions or even women who are experiencing um, miscarriages and are afraid to see a doctor because of all the legal and criminalization of of being pregnant here in Alabama. So yeah, it was it was really eye-opening for me. Man, yeah, that's true. I mean, the truth is people still need abortions. And I was really interested to learn more about safe aftercare centers. Um, one of my big takeaways that what stood out to me was something Robin said, Roe was so suddenly overturned. We have this feeling that rights are going to be returned to us just as suddenly. And of course, it's not going to work like that. This is a process and it's going to be a long fight. But this is going to be a long episode if I don't stop talking. So <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so let's stop talking about what we're going to talk about and get to it. Yeah, let's just dive right in. Let's start the show. Today, we're going to be talking with representatives from three reproductive justice organizations, Yellowhammer Fund, ACLU, and the West Alabama Women's Center. So our first guest is Tish Gotell-Fox. Tish is the legal director at the ACLU of Alabama and an attorney and advocate with nearly 25 years of experience in matters impacting equal rights, civil liberties, and social and racial justice. Tish has also served as a law professor in Texas, North Carolina, and Georgia. Our second guest is Kelsey McLean. Kelsey is the deputy director of Yellowhammer Fund. She is an abortion rights activist who got her start in Texas, ensuring access to stigma-free and inclusive sexual health education. Now based in the Carolinas, Kelsey's work confronts the same barriers that impacted her own ability to get an abortion. Our third guest is Robin Marty. Robin is the director of operations for the West Alabama Women's Center and the author of the book, Handbook for a Post-Roe America. Robin is a speaker and activist specializing in abortion rights, access, and the anti-abortion movement. As a freelance writer on reproductive rights issues, her work can be found in NBC, The Guardian, Politico, Cosmopolitan, Rolling Stone, and most recently, Time Magazine. Welcome, everybody. We're so honored to have you. Thank you for having us. Thank you for inviting us. Thank you so much for inviting us on. So to set up the podcast for our listeners that may be unfamiliar with your organizations, can you each provide a brief overview of what your organizations currently do and how you have been impacted by the overturn of Roe? I will happily go first. This is Robin Marty at West Alabama Women's Center, where prior to Roe v. Wade, we were the largest abortion clinic in the state of Alabama. We provided roughly one half of all of the abortions that occurred in the state of Alabama. And in the year preceding Roe v. Wade being overturned, our patients moved from mostly Alabamians with a few out of state to our patients being of majority Alabamians, but also 25% of them were from out of state, mainly Mississippi, because their clinic was overflowed. 
than Louisiana because their clinics were too busy, Texas finally, because they couldn't find a place to go in between Texas and our clinic because of the ban that had gone into effect there even a year before Roe was overturned. So before Roe, we were seeing probably between two and 300 patients a month coming in in order to have their pregnancies terminated. And that turned off like a spigot the moment that the Supreme Court said that abortion was no longer a national right. Alabama, within a matter of hours, had put into effect its 2019 abortion ban, and we saw our, all of our patients disappear. Um, we ourselves closed for about a week, and then we reopened and stayed in our space and in our state in order to be able to provide post aftercare for people who might leave the state and get abortions or for people who might try to manage their own care at home and not have a safe place to go to be sure that they did it properly. Um, we've also really made an uptick in patients who come into us in order to find out that they're pregnant. And for a lot of people in Alabama who don't have access to any sort of health insurance, we provide a pregnancy verification that will allow them to get onto Medicaid. So we're still here doing the work and still here seeing the patients because abortion is gone, but that actually made the need for all these other healthcare services that much more dire. Wow, Robin. I think I speak for everybody when I say that I am so glad that you're still here holding strong and providing services for people here in Alabama. Um, Kelsey, how about you? Can you share what the Yellowhammer Fund is currently doing? Um, so I can definitely share about Yellowhammer and our post and uh, pre and post jobs work. So uh, Yellowhammer has always really embraced a full range of reproductive health care rights and justice work. And prior to the Dobbs decision back in June of last year, a heavy emphasis of our work and our budget was on funding abortion. Um, that looked a few different ways. It looked like directly subsidizing the care that um, people were receiving in clinics by sending money to those clinics um, to offset the costs of out-of-pocket care. It looked like paying for people's bus tickets and plane tickets to get out of state or even within state. Um, a thing that a lot of people don't understand is even when abortion access was legal, it was really not easily accessible to a majority of people in um, our state and across the South. Even if you had clinics in your state, um, our states are big. We don't have public transit. It's hard uh, to access those um, facilities. So we would help people get there. We would help people pay for childcare. We give them money so they could feed themselves while they were making these trips to access their care. And we would just help them navigate the variety of barriers that would jump up and try to interfere with their ability to just have an abortion. Um, as Robin already hit on um, the day that the Dobbs decision happened and we lost Roe v. Wade here in this country, our work rapidly shifted within a few hours. And it took longer than a few hours for us to figure out how we were going to really fully respond in this moment. But we went from an understanding that our work would continue, would be, but would be more difficult. It would be really focused on getting people out of state, helping them navigate the fact that there was nowhere local that they could access this care. Um, and we found out that due to Alabama's laws, we couldn't even fund abortion or make referrals for people that are needing to access abortion care. 
So we found ourselves essentially completely gutted in our mission to support abortion rights, which was to directly confront those barriers. And um, we had to really make a pivot and shift to how we confronted abortion access and justice in Alabama. We are a reproductive justice organization, which means that we are not just about a single issue and that we understand the different marginalizations and realities that bring people to reaching out to us for any level of assistance. So we've started leaning really heavily into our family justice work, both um, doing direct case management on behalf of people who need access to different resources just to survive their lives and thrive. Um, and we've also really leaned heavily into advocacy in ways that we always were doing, but weren't such an emphasis for us because so much of our energy was dedicated to just confronting the problem. So we do a lot of advocacy around self-managed abortion, um, how to safely do that, how to safely access those resources without ending up in jail. And we just actually finished up an amazing fellowship uh, where we recruited 25 people from around Alabama and the Deep South to come and just learn more about reproductive rights, justice, and access, how to advocate for these things in their communities, and um, how to become like a centralized hub for their community to get information and resources and emergency contraception and things like that. Um, we also do a really, really heavy push on mailing emergency contraceptive to people across Alabama, Mississippi, and the Florida Panhandle. And um, our goal is to get folks mailed emergency contraceptive within a few days of them requesting an order. It's definitely more of a to have in your cabinet than an emergency. We just don't have the capacity to, you know, mail things out to people overnight. But um, we're really focused on prevention, on access, on education, and on making sure people can just thrive and survive in the really difficult times that we're facing. Thanks, Kelsey. That fellowship sounds really exciting. And your organization is doing some important work. Uh, actually, it makes me just want to say thank you for your service every time I hear people talking about reproductive justice work. So thank you for your service. Um, okay, Tish, how about you? Can you tell us about the ACLU? The ACLU of Alabama is the primary litigation arm protecting abortion rights in Alabama through the Dobbs decision. The ACLU also has a political advocacy arm. So we have always had a lobbying effort in the Alabama legislature. And we also have an organizing arm. So we have always helped to support independent organizations in protesting or otherwise giving agency to people in the state of Alabama who support right of access to abortion. Before Dobbs, we were the primary party representing the independent clinics in litigation to sustain access to abortion. And after Dobbs, we became the primary organization to talk about what the legal landscape would look like now that we don't have a litigation avenue to pursue. To that end, the ACLU went from being a reproductive rights organization to a reproductive justice organization. That is not just talking about abortion and why it's important, why it's healthcare, but also talking about the other issues that impact pregnant people in the state of Alabama. That includes OB deserts, the public health crisis 
of access to healthcare in any form, but specifically access to healthcare, which would help us lower the maternal mortality rate and the infant mortality rate in Alabama and policies and procedures that Alabama could adopt to make birthing and parenting in Alabama substantially more healthy than it already is. Wow, thank goodness for for all of you and the work that you do um, and for sticking around after the the band. Obviously, needs have shifted, and I'm so grateful that there's this support network for people. Uh, we do want people to come away from this episode having an idea of the myriad effects. This isn't just an abortion ban. Uh, the scope of this is is quite large. And Tish, uh, I had a question for you. The total ban on abortion in Alabama is scary and it's confusing. Uh, in a nutshell, can you tell us what's illegal and what's legal in Alabama? I wish that I could <laughs> tell you what is legal and what is not, mm. but it's really not clear what is permissible health care and what is impermissible when it comes to terminating a pregnancy. We know that on-demand abortions are no longer legally allowed. That means for the person who took a pregnancy test or confirmed and discovered that they were pregnant, and that is a disaster, that person does not have the right to terminate that pregnancy in Alabama. The problem is that not all abortions are necessary for the reason that people think. For example, I know of a person here in Alabama personally who suffered a miscarriage at about seven weeks. That's very early in a pregnancy, but her OB could not provide any medical support so that she could pass the deceased tissue and start the healing process. Her doctor could not give her a therapeutic abortion. And so had her body not processed that miscarriage in a natural and productive way, she would have had to wait until there were complications before she could anticipate getting the medical support that she needed. That impaired for her mental health, but it also put at risk her physical health, which was totally unnecessary and not at all what I think people think of when they think of abortion practices. Our attorney general has gone out of his way to leave doubt and uncertainty about what is and is not allowed. And as a consequence of that uncertainty, the medical profession is cautious. They are impaired in providing their skill set. And people who become pregnant in Alabama are at risk for no reason. Listening to Tish right now and listening to her explain all of the things that lawyers think make it so very clear why we are having such a difficult time here as medical professionals. And especially why a place like our clinic is so necessary, because when a doctor does not believe that they are able to provide an abortion for whatever reason, then it's up to a patient, unfortunately, to find a place that is going to be willing to go take that step and say, we believe this is this is a legal um, example of when abortion should be allowed. We are going to go ahead and do that. Hospitals won't do this. Doctors won't do this. It's imperative that clinics like ours, where we aren't using the religious 
um, ideas of what abortion is and isn't, but especially aren't using um, excuses like we need to speak to our lawyers first or um, we have too many patients right now. You're just going to have to wait. Not using all of those excuses in order to provide care that in this case was very medically necessary. And so if our lawyers can't figure this out, how are doctors supposed to be able to address this patient by patient, one by one as they come in? And so that's why at our clinic, we feel that knowing that we do have an attorney general who has essentially left things open-ended simply to cause as much chaos and stop people from doing anything that they think might get them in danger the only way to push back against that is to do the things that we believe are legally allowed and go ahead and do those despite not having any sort of go ahead from the attorney general and then realize that we might have to later deal with litigation or later deal with arrest and it's horrible for us to think okay we might get arrested for providing somebody with some health care that's going to save their lives but when the other side of it is okay otherwise this person may go septic this person may <laughs> may i mean even if they have a regular abortion this is something that we've seen at our clinic that they will leave the state and obtain a legal abortion and then have some sort of concern or complication go into a hospital and be turned away and so this isn't about what is legal in Alabama. This is about what is a human right and how do we keep people safe and healthy? Mm. I mean, you're making some really great points about, you know, the impact here, how doctors have their hands tied, how without any clarity from lawyers, you know, it's like, what do you, what can you do? Um, and really, you're having to put yourself at such a great risk because you're saving people's lives and, and people's lives are at risk here. So, um, Kelsey, I'm really curious about what you have to add to this conversation from your organization's point of view. One missing piece is, I think, the threat of criminalization um, on actual people who are accessing these services, are experiencing the miscarriages, because I I think ultimately that's going to be the first person that gets charges that is thrown in jail and that has the least amount of resources behind them. You know, if a doctor gets yoked up by, you know, a dentist, you know, gets yoked up by providing um, a root canal and then someone has a miscarriage, the, that dentist will probably not spend the night in jail that night. The case for the person who's had the miscarriage is going to look very different because that's who the state is going after. They're going after the people who are accessing these services. They're going after the doctors that directly provide abortion care. Um, and then there's all of these other casualties that can get caught up in the mix. And the impact on um, people when they're you know thrown in jail for something that they had no control over or thrown in jail for something that they absolutely had control over and made very intentional and deliberate decisions around. Um, mm. It's going to be substantial and extreme and long lasting. So I think that there's just, uh, it's important to not forget that there's the people most in danger and most marginalized and most impacted by these attacks are the actual people, pregnant people who will be utilizing these services and, you know, going to the doctor for care and not to mention the many ways that they're not going to be receiving adequate health care in a state that already is an incredibly dangerous state to be pregnant and birth in. Um, people are not going to be facing interventions that could potentially pro 
protect and ensure future fertility. I know abortion care is a part of a process for a lot of people who want to have children. And that abortion care comes along at a time and place where we realize that there isn't a safe way for this pregnancy to continue and that there could be lots of complications going forward and people do lose their fertility after successful pregnancies and unsuccessful pregnancies. So I think that there could be a lot that happens that completely and totally destroys people's future fertility, their right to grow their families at a time that makes sense for them. Um, and we're just going to be heaping on the trauma that people are facing when they're losing wanted pregnancies, when they're undergoing miscarriage, when they've had a tragic change in life events and going forward with a pregnancy just no longer makes sense. Um, Oh, um, and what I'm hearing you guys say, and Kelsey, especially the the idea of the the law or the ban here having exceptions, quote unquote, or even explicitly staying and stating in HB 314 that the the patient is not the target, it's the provider. Because we have such a messed up, cloudy, confusing, aggressive, you know, approach in this state. Uh, to this, to women's healthcare in general, we're seeing really, really broad repercussions in the state. Well, and I think one of the things that is really difficult for people to wrap their heads around at this moment is that when we have a law that says that we are not coming after the pregnant person, we are only coming after the provider, what is not being recognized by most people is that in this day and age, any person can be an abortion provider. That is both the good and the bad that comes with the fact that medication abortion is safe, easy, and far more accessible than any other type of abortion is. And so when you have, we are coming after the provider, that is opening up the doors for, okay, now we are going to look at every person in your family. Did they help you with that abortion? Okay, now we are going to consider calling in child protective services to see if they can come in and investigate your family. Okay, now we are going to look at every friend that you have, every piece of mail, every message, every text, every phone call. This is all about bringing every person into a possible um, circle of suspicion in order to prosecute and, of course, by prosecuting, hence make terror in any person who also might be considering obtaining their own abortion because it will make every person that they know suddenly vulnerable. You should also keep in mind that in Alabama, the abortion ban is not the only method by which this state criminalizes negative birthing outcomes. We also have a chemical endangerment law, which criminalizes any substance consumed by a pregnant person, which is known or ultimately ends a pregnancy. So while the abortion ban does not put a pregnant person at risk of prosecution, the AG has specifically identified mm -hmm. that the chemical endangerment law may be an avenue through which they might prosecute those who are receiving abortions or otherwise uh, ingesting anything that might compromise the pregnancy. And let's be clear. Under Alabama's chemical endangerment law, even things that are not contraband substances may form the basis for the criminal allegation. It is not just 
the person who overdoses or who has an addictive disorder. It is also the person who takes a prescription medication that is counterindicated. Of course, the medication abortions could be viewed as chemical endangerment. And yet the people who are most exposed to potential criminality are not all of the pregnant people in Alabama. It is most likely to be the poor, those who are living on the razor's edge, those who already have so many other things going on in their pregnancy. And it is unlikely that wealthier or more resourced people are mm -hmm. going to find themselves at the end of a criminal investigation. Yes, can you, for our listeners that may not understand what the chemical endangerment law is, can you just quickly say what that is in Alabama? Sure. Even with Roe versus Wade in place, Alabama has a statute which allows for uh, detention of a pregnant person, prosecution of that pregnant person, if they are found to have ingested substances that are considered dangerous to a pregnancy. The way that that has played out in the state of Alabama is that pregnant people who are drug tested and found to have used marijuana, heroin, cocaine, uh, methamphetamine are at risk of being prosecuted for that use of a contraband substance. And in the state of Alabama, we have seen numerous people end up in prison having been found guilty of violation of our chemical endangerment law. So even when there was legal protection for abortion, Alabama was already setting the stage to criminalize unexpected outcomes for pregnant people. So I think it was you, Robin, that touched on this. We know that medication abortion is incredibly common and safe. Um, it accounts for the majority of abortions. In 2020, it was 52% of abortions. Um, and I saw a Yellowhammer post that put it well. The risks associated with self-managed abortions are legal, not medical. So now that access is even more limited, Kelsey or Robin, can you talk about the importance of self-managed care? Yeah. So um, first, when we talk about self-managed care, we don't want to talk about it as the like end all be all solution of abortion care for people in the um, South. And I'm not suggesting that's how we were talking about it, but I just always like to emphasize that because I think a lot of people in states with access are just like, great, abortion pills, problem solved. People have access to abortion. Um, but an important part of abortion access is really choice and it sucks when you are given only one option to end mm -hmm. your pregnancy. Um, medication abortion is great. It is a really great option. It has literally liberated access, access for people across this globe. Um, it's safe. It's effective. It's also a pain in the ass, to put it lightly. It is a painful process. It mm -hmm. is actually a little bit harder for some people to conceal what they are going through when they have a medication abortion versus a surgical abortion, because the aftercare for uh, medication abortion is much more prolonged, much more significant. 
And there's a lot more bleeding, cramping, and obvious signs that you have been pregnant um, that come from self-managing, especially self-managing later um, in pregnancy, especially after uh, like eight to 10 weeks. What's great about the medication abortion regimen is that we have options when it comes to how we self-manage our care. We can do it with a combination of medications, um, one of which was developed directly to end pregnancy and another one that is commonly used all across the world for a variety of conditions, including pregnancy management and miscarriage management to help with uterine contractions and bleeding. So it's a really great option and it's also not a great option for some people. What's really important about medication abortion access right now for us in Alabama is that for so many people, um, even before uh, the decision that happened in June that eroded Roe v. Wade, they just couldn't get to a clinic. Um, we lead busy lives. We have children that have activities. We have children that are just required to be in school every day. And if those kids don't show up to school, we suddenly have a truancy officer on our front porch. So our children are literally already being, you know, viewed under the eye of criminalization. Um, and we got to keep them in school so we don't end up in that system. And uh, medication abortion just allows people to manage their own abortion care on their own time, on their own terms, and in their own way. And miscarriage also is just this incredibly common and ubiquitous experience right. for people, especially um, uh, people of reproductive age. And it's not something you're exactly alone in. Um, you know, I'm someone who has uh, had abortions and they all were induced with medication. And I actually found a lot of common ground with a friend of mine who is not anti-abortion, but very uncomfortable with abortion and never really wanted to talk with me about it. And she had a miscarriage and she reached out to me afterwards and was like, oh, that's what you went through. And like, wow, like we've been through some shit. And I was like, yeah. So, you know, having access to self-managing and medication abortion means that you have a community already um, that can support you, whether or not it's someone who's had an abortion. And, you know, there are ways that you can safely get these medications mailed to you. There are ways that you can safely search for these medications. Um, and people can travel out of state to get these medications as well. And it just opens up a little bit more of the options for them as to like where they can go. I know there's facilities that do telemedicine and literally all you have to do is physically be in the state. So like, let's say, um, I don't know, I think Georgia, they now are only able to go up to six weeks. But if you were able to get an appointment with Carafem out of Georgia, if you have family that lives across the state border, you just hop over there, do your virtual appointment online, get your meds mailed to you, and you have your medication abortion. And that's why at Yellowhammer, we're leaning really hard into educating people about how to self-manage, how to safely access those medications, how to navigate the legal pitfalls and challenges that you could run into if you do decide to get those medications mailed within state versus traveling to receive those medications. And we're also doing a lot of advocacy around making sure that if anyone does get caught up in a legal process um, when accessing those medications, that they have legal recourse, they have resources, and they have someone there to help them get out of jail. Um, so I, I, I got a little distracted. I, I hope I answered the question. Yeah, you touched on a lot. And I think one thing that was uh, in my notes is being a safe aftercare center. You mentioned that the West Alabama Women's Center is a safe aftercare center. Robin, can you talk more about that? 
Of course. Um, Kelsey covered almost everything completely <laughs> fabulously, um, as per always. Um, one thing that I did want to say, though, is when we talk about medication abortion being more difficult, being being less able to hide, but also that the process is painful and there's bleeding and all of these physical things that you don't get with a procedural abortion. One of the things that I try to help make sure that people understand is that this is a labor. You, If you are a person who is pregnant, unless you have a procedural abortion, you are going to go through this because if you continue to remain pregnant, you are going to have a labor. If you have a miscarriage, you are going to have a labor. If you have medication abortion, you are going to have a labor. This is all the same thing. It's a shorter version of it. It's a less risky version of it because labor at six weeks, eight weeks, 10 weeks, 12 weeks is very, very different from labor at 37 weeks. When people try to do these scare tactics of medication abortion is so dangerous, you have all of these complications like bleeding and intense pain and potential sepsis or infection, the reality is every single one of those complications that they're talking about is a complication that comes from giving birth. So the idea of medication abortion as something that's dangerous and painful and, and traumatizing and all these things, a person is going to go into labor and go through this regardless. This is a safer version and earlier version of this pregnancy and labor. And that leads to why we need aftercare centers. And aftercare centers isn't just about people who are trying to manage their own care. Aftercare centers are so important right now because we know that hospitals are already overfilled with patients. When you go into an emergency room because you are bleeding, a doctor is not going to see you as a priority. They are going to tell you to sit. They are going to come to you when they have dealt with the heart attack and the gunshot and the broken leg and all of these other things, primarily because they're busy. But also, let's be honest, They see pregnancy as something that isn't an immediate threat. They see it as something that most people who are capable of giving birth will go through at some point in their life. And so it's not something that they have to address immediately, like these other concerns that are right there in front of them. So that's one reason that we need to have centers. Another reason is because if a person is miscarrying, and we do have things like criminal endangerment laws, now that abortion is illegal, Every person who does not have a healthy, successful birth is potentially a suspect of having tried to manage their own abortion. So this is a place for them to come to, to be able to be sure that there isn't somebody in the hospital who's going to report them to the police. But the final thing is that when patients are going to be moving out of state in order to get abortion access, they need a place that they will be able to come to where they can be seen because Doctors say, you should go back to your clinic. I don't want to see you. Now, when you have a clinic that is back in Chicago, because that's how far you had to go to in order to be able to get your abortion, no, you're not going to be able to go back to that clinic in order to be able to have any sort of follow-up care. And this is where I get controversial because it's not a podcast unless I get controversial and have people go, oh, whoa, Robin, (laughs) did you really just say that? But it's the responsibility of abortion clinics that remain. It Mm. is something that providers who still exist, who are still seeing patients, who had the privilege of being able to move to other states or be able to keep other clinics open, 
it is their responsibility to make sure that those patients are cared for. Their responsibility does not end the moment that a patient leaves and walks out the door. It is the responsibility of all of these mobile clinics that have popped up everywhere and said, okay, we're going to offer medication abortion. All of the telemed clinics that say, okay, we're going to offer a medication abortion because they are doing that care, but they are not making sure that the abortion is successful and safe and that the patient is okay when it's done. And so not providing a community, a network of abortion aftercare centers is, is probably the biggest movement failure that could have happened post Roe v. Wade, in my opinion. So it is in the best interest of every person, regardless of what state they live in, regardless of the type of abortion work that they do, to make sure that there are safe, secure, ample places for people to go to to get follow-up care and aftercare here in the South. And this is all beyond just the fact that, honestly, it's a human right to be able to access abortion wherever you live and not have to go somewhere else to get it. Robin, that makes me think of a couple of things when you're talking. And I'm so glad that you say that because as you're talking, I keep thinking, what about the training that's going to fall to the wayside in the medical community when it's no longer happening? Who are going to be the people 10, 20 years from now who are going to who are going to keep these clinics going, who are going to have the knowledge and the experience to help these women in this post-care? I mean, I wish I knew. We already know in the state of Alabama that a lot of our training has disappeared just in the last year. We've already lost hospitals, but we're losing OBGYN um, centers within the hospitals as well. We know that sometimes we send people to the hospital in order to have follow-up care, even before Roe was overturned and there was nobody there who knew how to perform a DNC or was comfortable performing a DNC. Um, right now, I know there are organizations like, I think it's OBs for Reproductive Justice, who are setting up travel funds for obstetricians who are in training in red states to be able to leave their states to go to blue states for training. That is not how this is supposed to work. The idea that we have a form of medical care that cannot be accessed, life-saving medical care. Um, regardless of your feelings on abortion, this is still a, a procedure that people need to know how to do. And we are cutting that off. And it terrifies me every day, to be completely honest. If, if we don't step up, I don't know who's going to. And that's scary. Right. Well, that leads me to another question then, which is, again, this talk about access. You can just drive over to another state and get access so long as some states still has legality in, in the United States, but I think that's a big misconception that you, you, Robin, have written about. And Kelsey, I've heard people from your organization talk about a lot, which is the misconception of this access. Like, what is the misconceptions that you're hearing a lot? Well, I want to specifically address the travel to legal locations. Because as a legal matter, that doesn't eliminate potential criminal liability in the state of Alabama. Aside from our abortion ban, we also have an aiding and abetting statute that potentially exposes those who support or assist anyone in leaving the state of Alabama to secure an abortion with potential criminal liability. And let's be clear here, aiding and abetting 
intentionally supporting and assisting someone in leaving the state to partake in an activity which within the state is a criminal act may be a constitutional effort by the state. I am not certain that it is constitutionally tolerable to criminalize activity that takes place in another state, but often the people who are providing support and assistance are the people who are closest to a pregnant person. And so the family member who drives that person to the airport or travels with them may be exposed to aiding and abetting which basically means not only does Alabama not allow for abortion within its territory, but it is seeking to extraterritorially criminalize what happens outside of our jurisdiction if that person returns to Alabama. So we just saw in Idaho um, passing the trafficking, quote unquote, of a minor if they go out of, if someone helps someone go out of state to obtain an abortion. So is it explicit in Alabama's ban for that aiding and abetting is illegal? Or is this one of those gray areas that we're just sort of living in fear? This is one of those gray areas. And it really depends on how enthusiastically a particular prosecutor or the state attorney general will be about stopping abortion, not only within Alabama, but at all. And please keep in mind, we are in the middle of our legislative session. The idea of statutorily creating a trafficking charge for supporting or assisting a person in traveling to obtain an abortion will be one of those terrible policy choices that I would be surprised if Alabama didn't follow. Mm-hmm. But so far, no, no bills yet. This session. There hasn't yet. Um, We haven't seen anything come up yet. I do not know if there will be. Um, I can tell you from the perspective of the clinic that right after Roe was overturned, we were informed of this criminal statute, aiding and abetting, criminal conspiracy, whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. And it was because of that that we did not believe that we were able to provide any sort of referrals. We had initially been giving money to patients that we had already booked who lost their appointments because of of the decision. And we were told that that was probably illegal. So for the last, oh gosh, time is endless. For the last nine months or so, we at the clinic had been very careful about following all of the rules that could possibly fall into this very gray, what is aiding and abetting idea. And then we realized that's dumb. (laughs) So like... We are going to lose everything if we don't start taking at least small incremental steps to test and see what are they going to come at you over. And we felt that we had the resources to be able to be the people who did that. And as such, one of the things that we now do is we, when people, because God, every day people call up and ask for abortions at the clinic repeatedly. And we tell them now that we have resources on our website where they can find out where the closest legal clinic is, where they can find out where they can access these medications, um, where they can hear our pledge to them that we will help them if they self-manage, that we will see them if they leave the state, that we will make sure that they are cared for if they're miscarrying and worried about arrest. And so that's our first step in testing what we are allowed to say, because 
I've spent all of my career trying to predict what the latest challenge is going to be from the GOP and how they're next going to try to cut off abortion access. And I did not see this silencing loss of the ability to give free speech as one of the things that was going to happen. And so we have to push back because otherwise they haven't just beaten us, they've silenced us too. And as long as we can speak, we can still fight back. You're here. Yes. That's yes. And Robin, we will put a link in the show notes to that on the website. Is that the what you need to know about being pregnant in Alabama? That is. We were told that as long as we had all all the information that provides support for people who remain pregnant, that um, this is not viewpoint discrimination. And as such, we should be legally safe. Wonderful. We will have that link in the notes. So both of your organizations, uh, the Yellowhammer and the West Alabama Women's Center, you both talk about Alabama's maternal mortality rate, which is the third highest in the nation, which impacts Black women, women of color, poor women, and women living in rural communities more than anyone. So what obstacles are you seeing pregnant women facing? I mean, I know you've already talked a little bit about them, but I'd like to go maybe a little bit deeper into some of these obstacles and what you're seeing on the ground. Oh, how much time do you have? I know. <laughs> <laughs> I have. That's a whole other Okay, episode. I'll give you the abbreviated version because okay. these are the things that I have learned. Our state has refused to expand Medicaid. We know that. We know that they are never going to. And as such, they are killing our patients. They are killing our people because the people who come to us are coming to us, first of all, because they have no insurance and they're pregnant because they can't access contraception. Alabama is now the only state in the country that hoards its Title X funding and will only put it through the county health department. Um, Mississippi just finally released their money to another organization that divvies it out to groups that aren't just the county health departments. We are now the only ones who send it just to that one county health department in each county that is open irregularly, doesn't have a doctor on all the time, does all of the health care and not just contraception, prenatal care, sexual health care all the reasons why this is wrong. So obviously we have people who have no insurance and they have now become pregnant because they were given no opportunity to not become pregnant and they have no doctors. The only way to get onto Medicaid in Alabama when you are pregnant and get onto this more extensive eligibility for Medicaid is by getting a pregnancy confirmation from a doctor, but they don't have doctors. And Mm. so, They have to find a doctor to confirm a pregnancy in order to get on Medicaid, despite having no doctor and knowing that no doctor will see them because they don't have insurance. This is why nobody can get on Medicaid and why prenatal care is being pushed out so, so far for people. So at West Alabama Women's Center, we are a Medicaid provider. And as such, we are doing pregnancy verifications for any person who comes in. If they end up getting approved by Medicaid, great, we might get a reimbursement. If they don't, oh, well, we just lost some money. It doesn't matter. At least this person is getting care. We provide prenatal care for every person who asks for it, regardless of their ability to pay or their insurance status. And we tell them that we will do that until the point in which they can find a doctor who will take it over for them if they want to do that. With Medicaid, even now, it takes six to eight weeks for a person to be approved once they have their pregnancy confirmation. 
So we are talking about a near impossibility for a patient to actually get to see a doctor during the first trimester. Even then, once they have their confirmation and their eligibility, they have to find a doctor who's actually willing to see them, which unsurprisingly, there is a law that says every doctor in Alabama has to accept Medicaid, but it does not say that they have to accept Medicaid patients. So it just so happens that every doctor they contact doesn't have any openings, or it turns out they don't have any open appointments until four months down the road. This is why people aren't getting care and why they are dying in hospitals. Our patients, for the most part, are telling us that they would rather stay with us and have prenatal care through the entirety of their pregnancy and just go to a hospital and take whatever doctor happens to be there because we are the only way they can guarantee a continuity of care. The fact that this is improving healthcare situations for people is why one of the many reasons why we have such a bad health outcome for people who are pregnant here. I think the only thing I can add, and I think an impetus for a lot of the work that we do at Yellowhammer is that I think a lot of what is considered acceptable for people to face in childbirth is not acceptable for people to actually face in childbirth. It, it's all anecdotal. And certainly a lot of the anecdotes I have come from people's intense need to justify, which just a disclaimer, um, a lot of people feel the need to justify their abortion reasons. Uh, a lot of people will share um, more extreme reasons than I just want to have an abortion. But um, as a person who has literally just had abortions because I didn't want to be pregnant, didn't have a health reason. Maybe I did, but that was not the reason I was choosing abortion. I was choosing abortion because I did not want to have those children. That said, when I when we were still able to fund procedures, uh, a lot of the calls we got, people were sharing with us their reasons. And their reasons often were related to the significant impact that that pregnancy would have on their health, their happiness, their ability to be there for their families, to be there for their children, a lot of times we'd hear from parents who were already struggling for special needs children and knew that another mouth to feed would only not only be impossible, but would take them away from a child that is desperate for their care in a state that doesn't provide any resources or care for their child that has special needs. And uh, people are making abortion decisions for bigger reasons than this will kill me. And I... Um, I'm very fearful for what we're going to see happening to the long-term health and happiness of people that are forced to carry these pregnancies on because we so often just view health from the purely the physical. How are you physiologically doing? Is your body healthy? Is your body functioning? Is it moving? And from a really capitalistic standpoint, I think we're often focused from health to how much work can you provide and output in this world? Mm -hmm. uh, but health is so much bigger than that. We don't account for the significant impact of postpartum depression on people, especially on people who are forced to carry a pregnancy that they would not have carried to term originally. And um, when we think about, you know, the obvious impact of um, the maternal and fetal health crisis in Alabama, which is deaths in childbirth and deaths of um, infants shortly after, after delivery, we need to look at it a little bit bigger and see like, what are the long-term health outcomes of these people? And we know that they're not going to be great. And we know that the outcomes for their families won't be great. And the outcomes for their happiness won't be great. We know that domestic violence increases for women at in 
insane rate when we're pregnant and that that is going to be amplified in a Southern state that already is not putting adequate resources and care towards domestic violence and interpersonal violence happening. And we know that all of these things just get infinitely and disturbingly amplified for people who are gender nonconforming and trans in our state. So that's why Yellowhammer's really leaned into um, doing more of this holistic care for families and ensuring that they have their needs in net, that they have the bills paid that they need paid. In the absence of our ability to pay for abortion, that we're attending to really the aftercare for people who are birthing in this state and ensuring that, you know, they're not going hungry because they can't find anyone to go run groceries, you know, run groceries over to their home because they're busy breastfeeding and taking care of three children that are already in that home. So, yeah. This is really great because I think what you're talking about are issues that maybe people see uh, or hear about like birth justice or family justice, which we spoke about just in the intro. Um, and that's something I know that Yellowhammer Fund, you talked about the fellowship and creating these community hubs so resources can be you know, accessed and communities can meet their own needs and be more self-sufficient. Um, and that's an incredible long-term plan, whether we have you know, row or not. So I was wondering if maybe someone could speak to what, you know, birth justice and family justice means exactly what those terms mean and how you're witnessing reproductive inequities play out in our state. The distinction between reproductive rights and reproductive justice is a critical one for people to understand. Reproductive rights are the rights that I, as a litigator, fight to protect, your right to terminate your pregnancy if you so choose, your right to a surrogate if that is what you need, your right to retain possession and control of the products of in vitro fertilization. Reproductive justice is not just about will you or will you not remain pregnant. It is about whether or not we as a society, we as communities are nurturing the people who are critical to birthing and healthy family development. And really, in the state of Alabama, we have failed at reproductive rights and we continue to fail at reproductive justice. Alabama does not provide a diverse method of birthing. Our state is controlled by doctors who would prefer that you give birth in a hospital with as much medical intervention as they can justify to your insurance provider. And the simple fact is that we fail to provide all of the medical supports that would enable a person to have a healthy pregnancy. We start that failure with our attitude towards sexual development, health, education. We continue that failure by not funding Medicaid expansion, by not putting our dollars towards the uh, rural hospitals and health clinics. We continue that failure by creating the school-to-prison pipeline that criminalizes children who are not receiving the accommodations that they need for disabilities, who are not seeing their schools funded in a manner to allow them to eat healthy and nourishing food so that they can succeed in school. We are seeing that failure 
in not giving people the tools to have a life of agency and choice. And because Alabama is predominantly rural, we know that all of these impairments, all of these failures are amplified by rural living, poverty, and neglect. For me as a litigator, the shift from reproductive rights to being an advocate of reproductive justice is an intuitive. But the challenge for me is that when we're talking about reproductive justice, we can't sue our way to it. It has to be policy. It has to be organizing. And it has to be at the ground level. So um, people care about reproductive justice, whether they recognize it or not. People absolutely understand that families deserve, you know, adequate housing. And we just don't understand like how to get there and what adequate really looks like, because we all have like really definitions, uh, different definitions of that. Mm. But we know that the very first way to start really tackling this problem is to have folks ready to respond in their communities when they see someone in crisis, when someone reaches out to them, when someone needs support. And that sometimes a lot of our our arguments or objections with something new that we're learning about is coming from a place of fear and a place of misunderstanding and not from a place of like actually understanding these universal truths that we have. So that's why we spent we spent six weeks with our fellows where we met twice a week, where we really dug into these issues and the real history behind these issues and, you know, what might lead someone to live in the current circumstances that they live in today. And also, we just know that like the government isn't going to make sure we have information about how to safely self-manage our care, that the government doesn't care that we have access to emergency contraceptives and sometimes is working against that. Mm -hmm. And we wanted to make sure that no matter where you live in the state, rural, big city, outside of the state, that you really have access to all of this information, all of this knowledge, and you're the one that can help start shifting and changing minds slowly and surely by having those little community conversations. And, you know, it's just easier for you to really come around to the idea that we do all exist in community together and we all support each other. So, yeah, like we trained our fellows to talk about abortion in their communities where they might face a little bit more opposition, but they're going to be in community with someone that knows them, knows their background and knows their heart and might be more open to hearing what they have to say about the issue because they know this person. Well, that's a great segue into maybe one of our last questions and just a little bit shifting here to talking about the relationship between sex education, contraceptions and just general access to these things, because I know that you're also really focused on providing contraception and education. So can we talk a little bit about that? Like, what's the relationship between all of those things? So once you get to a point where you now have eliminated any ability to not become pregnant, be it through abortion, be it through being able to access contraception, the next thing you need to do in order to get more births is to make sure people don't know how their bodies work, don't know how and when they can maybe potentially um, protect themselves from becoming pregnant in the first place. So of course, they're not going to let students learn how to, at the very least, use natural family planning, which is not a thing that I recommend as the most <laughs> effective form of contraception. But if it's all you got, it's all you got. Um, they don't understand like that 
penile penetration and sperm is actually how pregnancy starts. Like they don't want children to know this because that goes against their agenda. So obviously we're doing everything that we can to get as much information out about sex ed. Um, but our goal right now is making sure that emergency contraception is very available, um, contraception, but contraception that is the type that the patient wants and is the type that they say is the best for them, that is available. Um, we will make sure that no person is turned away because they don't have enough funding to be able to pay for any contraception or any of their healthcare services. And that's our goal because we are a place that is open five days a week in Tuscaloosa and that a person can get in and get birth control within a day or two of having called us, whereas at the county health department, the only other place where a person can get free contraception, it's two to four months wait. We should add here that the reversal of Roe versus Wade was identified as just one more step in reversing a trend of giving women and people who become pregnant more control and more autonomy. And please understand, as a legal matter, the overturning of Roe versus Wade is not the end. It is the worst part of the beginning. Understand that a woman's right of access to contraception a woman's right to make that access on her own account, not with the permission of her husband or father or some other person, that is also at stake. When we talk about abortion, we talk about the termination of a pregnancy, the termination of that fertilized egg. But when we talk about pushes towards eliminating access to contraception, that is also on the table. In Utah, there is currently legislative movement to make certain types of contraception unavailable and illegal to access. This is about the government controlling female bodies, controlling wombs. And as a legal matter, we have a generation of precedent to support our access. And this Supreme Court has demonstrated that they are not at all interested in making that right of access a constitutional mandate. They believe that whether or not a woman has the control of her reproductive cycle belongs to the state legislature to decide. And that is an untenable place for us to be. Legislatively, at the federal level, we are seeing attempts to reestablish a woman's constitutional right of self-determination. But there's no guarantee that that uh, legislative agenda will prevail, and there's no guarantee long-term that it would remain. The right to control reproduction is a human right. It is basic. It is fundamental, just as most of the rights that we identify. The problem that we have right now is that the United States Supreme Court does not recognize that, and many states are not hearing from the people that they insist that the state protect that human right. Um, what I'm hearing from everyone is that we need to address all of the, the myriad uh, repercussions of a ban. Um, people that are being affected and you know we're we're going to have more episodes to talk about a lot of this in detail but backing up a little bit to give listeners 
perhaps a glimmer of hope, if it's a, a federal approach, if it's expanding the Supreme Court or ranked choice voting in Alabama, if, if we want to get that in the weeds or just an overall message of hope, what would each of you like to share for our listeners? I firmly believe that there's actually a lot of hope. And honestly, every month that we get past Roe being overturned, I have more hope. I found myself very excited by the Wisconsin turnout and the the election of a liberal to the Supreme Court. Yes. And I'm excited by that because that was, I mean, normally judges, allegedly judges' races are supposed to be apolitical, but this woman stepped up and said, the Supreme Court is not doing what it's supposed to do. Um, these are the things that I would do. I would fix gerrymandering. I would get rid of the pre-row abortion ban. These are the things that I would embrace. And that is what it means to elect me. And they did by a landslide. And not only did they do it by a landslide, but they did it through young votes. It was predominantly the, I believe, 25 and younger group that showed up that were the ones that really made this a very clear cut win. And so when you put that with Kansas voting the ballot measure and saying that they were going to keep abortion legal in the state, and you put that with all of the times now that we have seen this, this groundswell of people who are running and saying, I support abortion rights, are winning, I believe that things are happening right now. It feels hard because this all changed so quickly. And I think there's a part of us that makes us believe that this needs to switch back just as quickly. And if it doesn't, then that somehow something is going wrong. I try to remember that in um, 2020, we had June V. Russo was a win for us. In 2016, Whole Women's Health was a win for us. It took one year of Trump being able to elect all these people to the Supreme Court that basically undid the entirety of our Constitution. And I don't think that this is a country that's going to stand for that. Maybe we can't make the change in Alabama, but I do believe that we are going to be able to make that change federally. And that is going to eventually trickle down even to here, even if it may be that we are the last ones who ever get to have that sort of saying control. Okay, good. I feel a little bit more hopeful. Kelsey, let's go. Keep it going. <laughs> well, I think what we're learning through this is that these abortion bans, these laws don't actually reflect the will of the people. Mm. Um, something we've always known is that abortion is actually apolitical, um, that literally anyone can have an abortion, anyone of any political leaning, um, pro-life people have abortions all the time. And there's just a lot of misunderstanding or stigma or justification that happens in the process. But we know that our communities care about this issue and our communities genuinely want access to reproductive health care services and that they're fighting for it. I think the overwhelming, we received 50 applicants for our fellowship and it was genuinely hard for us to figure out who we were going to accept into this fellowship. Um, there is, we're not really talking about it publicly yet, but there is going to be a yellow hammer fund initiated pushback against the crisis pregnancy center movement, which we didn't even get into in this whole yes. um, space, but uh, you'll see that coming this summer. And we'll definitely share that news with y'all um, once it's here. But we anticipate when we're doing that, that we'll be well received that uh, no matter what size your community, how conservative, how liberal you're going to want us there. Um, just recently, Yellowhammer had a meeting with a community foundation that 
we should have known better. They were from a very conservative um, county here in Alabama, but we met with them. Their eyes got pretty big and wide when they found out what we did. But even at the end of the conversation um, uh, with this group of Republicans and um, anti-abortion folks who didn't know what they were getting into when they were meeting with us, they still wanted to know more about how we could bring emergency contraception to their community because their community needed it. They just wanted to call it something different, which we're not going to do. Um, so we know that folks want these resources, that folks have absolutely had their politics weaponized against them and their own best interests. And we know that our work will be the same no matter what community we're in, no matter who is reaching out to us. We believe you all deserve access to these resources, to this knowledge, to this power, and you'll all get it. So that's what I'm hopeful for is that we just continue to see that these issues really actually are bigger than what our government makes it, that these bans don't reflect the will of the people. And all it takes is the right person, or I guess the wrong person to be impacted by one of these barriers. And suddenly you start to see a lot of change. Awesome. I am excited by the possibilities moving forward. We have a whole two generations of people who grew up with the benefits of self-choice provided by Roe. There are women in this country who are at the top of their fields, at the top of their professions, and there's no denying that Roe versus Wade contributed to making that possible. Those people will not allow their progress to go back to pre-Roe experiences. It is the antithesis of everything they understand about the potential in their lives. And so I think we are going to see a groundswell of people participating in our legislative and public policy. I think we are going to see a groundswell of people from all kinds of communities talking about how challenging and dangerous and difficult it is to be pregnant and to do all of the things that come with medically dangerous situations like pregnancy. For far too long, we have been told that having a baby is simple, and it's not. We have been told that raising children is simple, and it's not. And I think that by trying to control the bodies of people who become pregnant, our government has knocked down a hornet's nest. And as a litigator who felt helpless on the day that Dobbs was issued, I am excited to see the groundswell of activism to reestablish reproductive rights in Alabama and across the nation. And I actually think that the people of Alabama will fight and win just like people any place else in this country. And I'm looking forward to standing arm in arm with those people. That's right. We dare defend our rights. State motto. <laughs> we got no choice. Well, I, for one, feel very grateful to be in a space with all of you amazing, empowering women. I mean, I'm just so inspired by the work that you do, everything that you talked about today, for joining us, for helping moving this movement forward every day at great risk. So thank you so much. And we are grateful that you are 
helping us reach even more people so that we can make sure that the networks and the allyships that we are trying to build right now are growing and so that we can show the state that they are not speaking to us or for us. Ditto. Absolutely ditto that. It's important that we get the word out about the work we're doing. Um, I think a lot of people don't know that the abortion, the only abortion fund in Alabama can't legally fund abortions anymore. Um, we still have, you know, clinics and other abortion funds across the country reaching out to us and they're shocked. People don't understand like how deep Alabama's abortion ban went and how much it stifled people's access. So it's important to get the word out. Thank you, ladies. And I am so excited to see where you go with this podcast. And if you need anything, please just give me a call. We would like to dedicate this episode to Mia Raven, a beloved leader for reproductive justice who passed away the night before we recorded this episode. Mia was not only the operations manager and founding board member of Yellowhammer Fund, but also the executive director and founder of Powerhouse in Montgomery. In the show notes, you'll find a link to support her family's GoFundMe and a link to the Powerhouse if you want to help sustain Mia's vision and legacy. Rest in power, Mia. You've been listening to the Fem South podcast and our six-part series on the impact of the Dobbs decision in Alabama, produced by Fem's Act, an activist wing of Fem South. Fem South is an intersectional book club, community, and podcast, and now activist team dedicated to demystifying the feminist movement and amplifying Southern women's voices. Our mission is to educate, integrate, and activate. If you would like to learn more about Fem South, you can follow us on Instagram. You can head over to our link tree and find all the different ways in which you can join our mission and participate. You can also ask to join our private Facebook book club group, where we talk about the books that we're reading and provide information about the events that we're sponsoring. As we continue to talk about the important impact of the overturn of Roe, it is important for us to say that we are not here to help anyone in accessing an abortion, and we do not offer any abortion services. If you would like to learn more information, though, you can head over to our link tree on Instagram. So follow us on Instagram at FemSouth. Click on our link tree where you can access our full and comprehensive list of reproductive justice information. You can also find out more information about us by going to femsouth.com. You can reach out to us at femsouth at gmail.com. And you can support us at patreon.com at femsouth or femsouth on Venmo or PayPal. Thank you for joining us. And until next time, you're listening to FemSouth.